Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester Podcast, What It Means. We explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Julie Ask, Vice President and Principal Analyst, to discuss where we are in the current state of digital transformation in the market. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. So, Julie, we've had a lot of conversations about the need for digital transformation, sort of the need for companies to catch up to a empowered, restless customer in the pace of digital innovation that just can be sometimes dizzying. So where are we today? So where we are today with digital experiences is we ask consumers to do all the heavy lifting. So let's take an example, you know, and I love to travel. So let's say I am in, I was, there was a scenario a few months ago where I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and I needed to get to Sydney. So the way I do that today with digital technology experiences is I start thinking through in my head all the things I need to do. I need to like book a flight. I need to get a seat. I need to get to the airport. I need to book a hotel. And there's like 45 other things I need to do to make this trip happen. And then I start thinking in my head, well, what are all the different apps and websites I need to go to? And then I start sequencing and going to each of these apps and these websites and start thinking through all the inputs I need to plug in to get the outputs and the actions that I want. So really, these machines are kind of dumb today, right? And they make me go through all these hurdles to get what seem to be some pretty simple things done, like get a ride, get to the airport, book a hotel. And the challenge with these experiences today is they don't let me as a consumer express my need in English directly. Mm -hmm. Like, I want a ride. I need a flight. I'm hungry. And so that's where the potential of these future experiences that depend more on a natural language engagement come in. And that's what's sitting on the horizon here three to five years out. That's where we want to get to. And that's what most companies have no ability to get done today. And so where it starts is, is for the most part, you know, companies just don't even have that as a vision or a strategy. If you look, right, we're about, what are we, 20, 25, 30 years into the internet with websites? And for the most part, these websites are kitchen sink of a bunch of back-end systems that have been bolted together, and then people have been tweaking the presentation layer for the past 10 to 15 years to try to make these services easier to navigate. Sort of navigating the complexity from behind, not serving the customer that's engaging it. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, we did an interview with the uh, CDO, the Chief Digital Officer of Macquarie Bank down in Sydney, Australia, a couple of months ago. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, so Macquarie, as a financial institution, is quite old and established as an investment bank, but becoming a retail bank was something that's new for them. So when he came in at the end of 2015, there's a number of things that he did But one of the first things he did to get this journey started is to do some ethnographic research and to do some journey mapping and talk to consumers. And when you go out and talk to consumers, let's say this is in a banking scenario, no consumer ever says, I'd really like a daily balance. (laughs) Um, A monthly balance is really important to me. You know, what consumers say is, you know, keep my money safe. Don't let anyone charge stuff to my credit card. I need to be on a budget. Can I afford to pay my utility bill at the end of the month? I need to file expenses, right? And so that illustrates a bit of the difference here between a need that I have as a consumer, which is to save money, file my expenses. I never have a need for a daily balance, but that's what digital experiences are today. So in the example of Macari, this is a this is a bank that, that probably codified a set of transactions or values that they provided to customers in a digital sense. 
But what needed to happen is understand what do consumers actually want? What do they value? And how does that fit into their day-to-day sort of walk-around life? Sort of this, this mismatch of I'm going to codify my operations on a digital stance or bolt it on versus I'm actually organically going to do the work to say, what do customers value and how do I fit into their day-to-day world so I have a persistent value I'm delivering? That appears time and time again in this podcast. It's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I believe you're dead on there. And I think, you know, the way Louise described it, um, he says, you know, we're not offering the consumer a product, which is exposing the back end or the mainframe, you know, onto the website. But what we want is to give the consumers an experience. You know, we want to help them obtain their goals. We want to help meet their needs. And, you know, what he's done in doing so is he, they actually created an app. And I, I know this is going to sound really funny to say this, but they created an app in English, right? That got away with all of this banking terminology. that was Human English. Like, yeah, human English. Right. They got away from the back end systems and got directly at my needs. So, you know, what I described initially with this travel example you know, they're not leaving consumers in a situation where I have to think about my need, think about the app, and then translate what I want into all this machine code to get something out of the system. You know, I can just directly express my need, whether it's through voice or through text or tapping on a tab in an app and just get what I want done. And it eliminates that friction in those intermediate steps. Yeah, and although that that, that sounds at one level sort of obvious and simple, which is that's you, you want to make it so that humans can engage it on their terms. We continue here time and time again. That's a really, that's a tall, long bridge because- Very much so. Yeah, because people don't know what does the consumer value? What do they need? Do the cons- does the consumer even know? But across channels, right? Like organizations are organized potentially by channel. And if those groups don't have a common understanding of the consumer, then you're going to treat that consumer within your own channel, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Channels are experience killers. Yeah. So one of the best analogies I heard in some of the research that we did, and this also uh, came out of, uh, you know, an interview in Sydney with a media company, is so many of these established, let's call them Fortune 500, Global 1000 uh, organizations, their operations or their digital experience or delivery operations are akin to cargo ships. Mm. Like they're these big container boats that are loaded down with all this heavy cargo I don't know, it's starting out in Singapore and it's, you know, they punch in the latitude longitude for San Francisco. That thing sets off two to three months. It arrives in San Francisco, it unloads, and then, you know, it's off on another long-term journey. So the resources are just tied up for the foreseeable future. And what organizations need to be, to your point, to kind of adjust is they need to be like little speedboats, like maneuvering and changing direction based on the waves and the temperature and what other boats are doing. Mm-hmm. Because you can't have this long-term planning and these long journeys at this point in these organizations that can't flex and move for, you know, for two reasons. Like one is consumer expectations are just changing way too fast. You know, in our parents' generation, a new technology, let's say in the let's continue the example within the financial services industry. You know, my parents chose a bank based on what was local. And then this thing called the ATM came around and that kept people right happy with money and getting money, I don't know, for 20, 30 years. Now, if a new technology comes around, like something like depositing a check with my phone, you know, consumers are happy with something, an experience like that for maybe 12 to 18 months. And then they're ready to move on and say, hey, what's next? Right. So I'll turn back to your cargo ship example. Yeah. 
because in our discussion earlier, you talked about the idea that that part of the challenge is what is the cargo itself, which is the cargo may not be what is the customer's voice, what are the customer's ambitions. It might be what are the internal processes, business rules, and obligations internally that's weighing down the boat. It may, it may not be weighed down by the external market pressures on the company, but the internal sort of inertia that company is holding. Yeah, and there's so many different dimensions of that. Um, there is, you know, probably the, one of the biggest uh, things that's hard to like shift the direction of the cargo ship, container ship, so to speak, is the, you know, the architecture and like all the back-end systems and that legacy, right? If you read Mike Facemeyer's research about the four-tier architecture and services layers and so forth, they don't have technology that's flexible enough, you know, to shift directions. In most Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, people are incented to do things that are very incremental, like keep the boat in the shipping lane, like right. don't crash into anything, don't go off course. They're not incented to go out and drive real change and, you know, be disruptive or disrupt their own industry. It's not quarter their culture, right? It's not quarter their culture. Uh, most business executives have what I would call very business-centric metrics. When we talk to businesses about their metrics, it tends to be, well, we're trying to drive adoption. We're trying to drive engagement. So we're measuring how often somebody comes to our app each month or how much time they spend there. We're trying to measure business results, revenue, profit, conversion rates, basket size. Consumer doesn't care about any of that. What the consumer cares about is, well, am I entertained? How fast am I getting something done? And those are the kind of metrics you need. So if I'm listening to this, part of the challenge is that I'm allocating my mind share as a business executive and I'm allocating resources as a business executive to those things that might have served me well two or three, four, five years ago but they won't serve me well today or tomorrow or two years from now. And so part of it is, is how am I focusing my, my team's attention and how am I focusing my resources? Yeah. And so I think Victor, it's not only just a thing, but it's the processes. You know, a lot of businesses are run by the loudest voice in the room. You know, the CEO shows up one day, you know, let's take this famous example from eight or nine years ago. I need an app. Let's get an app. Right. And it's the loudest voice in the room. But what's changed in the past four or five years is companies now have a lot of data. Right. It's easy to create a set of hypotheses, test those hypotheses, you know, set KPIs, see how you're doing and make a lot of small bets and then put more money into the bets that you make. And that's what's different from, let's say, four years ago, five years ago or even 10 years ago is the presence of real time data and analytics and insights that allow for smarter decision making. And so the processes are also one of the things that have to change, like how we get things done and how we make decisions. Right. So one of one of the things that strikes me is that we're at a place in time where there's significant potential. There's the potential in the technology. To your point, there's the potential in the data that is an expression of consumers' interest, ambitions, and intent. And you'd think that, that there's an unlocking process that takes place. That's a natural process, meaning companies left to themselves will sort of figure this thing out. But the kind of argument is that companies left to themselves won't because they're going to apply the old playbook to a new game, if you will. So how are, how are you seeing some of the leaders unlock the technology potential, the potential of their data, and even the potential of their own talent? Yeah, so this is, um, this is kind of broadly what we put under the umbrella of digital transformation or digital business transformation. So one of the exercises we went through in 2016 is Jeffrey Hammond and I went out and interviewed over 40 executives, SVPs, VPs of digital, chief digital officers, you know, chief marketing officers, at a breadth of industries and a breadth of continents 
that we thought were doing a good job of trans of transforming their businesses and making them more digital businesses to ask them exactly those questions. And there's certainly a set of key themes that come back, um, but there's a few that I'll highlight for you. Uh, more often than not, they have an external leader that doesn't have the legacy and the relationships and the experiences of, you know, having been told no within that organization. So typically a senior leader comes in from the outside. Those leaders and those who are successful start with small projects that matter to the business, show the results, build momentum. And through that process, a very incremental process, you know, not from zero to 101 step, but through a very incremental process, build momentum and continue to get more budget, more respect, more confidence from the C-level team to, you know, to grow those initiatives. And then there's a ripple effect through the organization, whether it's on the technology, on the processes, using more agile, changing the metrics, changing the relationship between the business and technology team. So it's less of an us versus a them, but it's a we. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they continue down the line of making some of those changes. And certainly, you know, then culture, you know, plays a key role in that as well. And the type of talent you have to have changes as well. So there's some prior learnings on the first one, the external leader, because if you look at the mobile industry, when the iPhone came out, there was an opportunity for a a logical and obvious response, which is this is turning into a software oriented market at that Mm -hmm. point in time. Some of the competitors to Apple sort of had a choice to make. Do I bring an external leader who's an expert in software, but maybe not an expert in mobile? Or do I keep with my own folks who really understand the organization well, they understand the politics well, they might be themselves politically empowered, and I'll just have them learn software along the way. We see this as a key point in time in the market where whether they're banks or insurance companies or healthcare companies sort of have the same choice is do I do I promote from within someone who really knows me well, or do I bring in essentially a foreign, foreign type of person who doesn't really understand me well, doesn't understand the industry well, but boy understands the next stage well. Where are companies in making that hard choice? So I think that has a lot to do with how much change is needed. Hmm. You know, are we on the right trajectory or do we need to seriously like pivot and course correct and get on a new trajectory? And I think there's also a difference between the, let's call them the the very senior leadership. Let's say someone at the C-level or who's engaging with the C-level who is more likely to come in from the outside and then the folks below. Uh, when we talk to these executives about where they go to get talent, you know, what talent is hard to find, you know, take some of this technology specialists off the list, like data scientists and artificial intelligence, because absolutely they're expensive and they're hard to find, but mobile isn't hard to teach. So yeah, these executives will then le- lean towards internal staff who knows the industry, knows the company, knows the technology inside of the company to go out and execute, but not necessarily set the strategic direction and make the change happen. Right, but that places the risk that the company will repeat its internal processes, but just in a digital way. Because that's the, is that the... Well, no, I think, because I think what happens is, is, you know, when we think about the levers of change, right, it's about the technology team relationship, it's process, it's organization, it's culture, it's talent, it's metrics. And when you're changing all of those things, you know, it's, those are pretty big levers. So I think, you know, like, like, let's use an analogy of a website. If we go back to 1995 and almost everybody is on dial-up, you know, I build a website for dial-up. And then one of the things we saw is like more and more people come onto broadband. And at some point, you know, companies are hosting two websites. I've got the, you know, the dial-up website and then I've got the broadband website. 
And then at some point, like so many people are on broadband, we're all on broadband, they just turned off the other website. And so there's an element here of that, of at some point, this thing, this, you know, these agile processes, this new way of doing business, design thinking becomes the majority rather than a project or a pocket within a company. And I think that switch gets flipped. But it's not, you know, from again, from like zero to 100 in a moment, it's very gradual. So Agile started with mobile and mobile development in large part. And then if you look in these corporations that are being successful in transforming themselves, they're taking this agile processes out of just mobile development into broader digital delivery. And now they're putting it into how they hire talent, how they think about budgeting, um, their product management uh, you know, cycles and processes. And they're taking that design thinking mentality and expanding it throughout their business as they get people who understand it and are experts and can carry out that execution. So that that's sort of a guide. That if you're of, successful, that happens. Yeah, that's sort of a guide that sort of says, I have to have a level of critical mass mm-hmm. to get to the, Bef- tipping, the tipping point where whatever I've innovated, whatever I've built is large enough to withstand sort of its reintroduction back to the core business. And I, I, I want to be attentive to what does critical mass mean? It could mean maturity, number of people, uh, level of revenue. It could mean a number of different things, but too small core business may kill. Large enough, it could have a, a significant influence on, on the core, whether that's a bank, insurance company, a telco, whatever it might be. That's the basic principle? Yes. So in the future state, how should teams be constructed or you know, maybe more accurately, who should be participating in building these future digital experiences? One of the places we started this conversation was with how we have to migrate from these large, monolithic, hard-coded experiences to more natural language. But even when we look at the Fortune 500 that are best of breed today, they use Agile. But one of the differences between them and those companies that are executing in what I'd call like human, what do you call it, human language, <laughs> is that they have data scientists and artificial intelligence expertise actually sitting on the Agile teams. Because as we think about the future of digital experiences, it's about personalization, one-to-one engagement, using my context to infer my intent and help, you know, get rid of the friction. And so you really have to have this AI or data science talent on resident on the team. So one of the other differences that came through in those companies that are truly leading edge is the presence of design thinking professionals on these agile teams as well and heavily involved in the design process up front. So Julie, what's in the way? One of the things that we know about digital and especially about mobile is that casts a long shadow into the organizations. And so for those organizations who are more sophisticated today, they're running out of runway, so to speak, on the benefits that they can capture in digital alone. So these executives aren't going to continue to capture more value until they can change the environment and the way people work in the physical space to really get the benefits of what digital can be. Yeah, so, I th- Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's one of the challenges, which is when we sort of describe the ideal in a digital sense, we will do, we will look for people that grew up mobile, grew up digital. We'll use the Amazon example. We'll look at firms that don't have the same hurdle issues, don't have the same inertia issues, don't have the same sort of the cargo ship thing you mentioned before challenges of, it's not that I need a, I'm designing from a blank sheet of paper. I'm designing from a heavy notebook of 10, 15, 20 years of history and practices and politics and that type of thing. And I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm trying to build something new that can compete in a market where there are digital and mobile native entities. 
while I'm trying to sort of reshape this while not clobbering it at the same time. So I think one of the, the industries most challenged today, but also most aggressive, are those that are franchise businesses. Right? So take the hotel business. IHG, SPG, Hyatt, Hilton, you name it. There's a central digital group and their agenda, let's say, for the past you know 20 years and in mobile for the last 10 years has been for mobile to be a marketing channel, a sales channel, and maybe a customer service channel. But now what they want to do is not just tran- you know have a great digital experience, but they want to have a great guest experience. And so now we've got this centralized digital team that wants to take that into thousands of hotel properties around the world and hundreds of thousands of rooms. And that's what we mean by getting these design thinking professionals into the process early. Because, you know, Bill Keen and IHG can go build a mobile app that unlocks a door, but until he convinces, you know, franchise owners and property owners to change the hardware on every door, to change the configuration and the check-in lounge, and to get staff that can maintain those door locks, he can't transform that experience. And that's what we mean. So when we take this mobile stuff, these connected products into the physical world, you know, who owns it? Who maintains it? Who's responsible for that experience? And that's where design thinking really comes in. And that's where this, you know, this gets really, really big in terms of benefits to these businesses. Yeah, it, it comes to sort of a core principle of change management, which is for me to understand what I'm changing, I have to bring onto that team someone who's living in the prior state. Because using your example of the door locks, which is I need someone who understands the nuances of that hotel and what are the specific things that might be surprising small but surprisingly big items like the door locks. So a lot of what I see is that some of the companies will put in a sort of a clean team, sort of digitally astute, digitally native team, but they they don't really sort of bring on the team the people that may resist, the people that may understand sort of when you get into the hotel room, you're going to find these examples so sort of the it's not just design thinking change, but the change management aspects of it is how do I bring on the people from the from the existing business onto that team who can start troubleshooting those small but big items? Absolutely. That's why mobile's is small stuff. You know, building the digital experience, that's that's you know, that's trivial. Now, I mean I'm exaggerating. But right? in comparison to the people stuff, right? But in, absolutely. But in comparison to reconfiguring your physical space and changing the way people work and you know retraining them, that's that's the heavy, heavy lifting once you get past, you know, having the right architecture in place to support these services. Right. That's, that's hard stuff. So, Julie, you're painting a picture where the customer's moving fast, technology's moving fast, markets are evolving as competitors move and disruptors come in. And much of this sits on the CEO's docket, meaning how does the CEO lead through this storm and lead to the other side so they thrive in a very different kind of world? So when you think of all that, what does it mean? There's a few things that CEOs have to wrap their head around. One is, you know, losing control. You know, I think there is a kind of a history with CEOs of either being the loudest voice in the room, the smartest person in the room, and a very command and control type of environment. But with technology and consumer expectations changing so fast and processes changing so fast, they need to get comfortable with letting go of that control and possibly not understanding everything that's happening around them. That's one. Uh, Two... They've got to get comfortable with, you know, what I call like a lot of chaos and not necessarily choosing who their partners are going to be. I think if we look historically, companies and CEOs are very used to saying, I'm going to do business with this company and this company and this company for whatever reasons. It's cost. They share my values. 
But today, consumers choose your ecosystem partners because you need to go out and serve your customers where they already are. And I think the third thing is, is what's very different today is the presence of real-time data and insights. And so we're no longer operating in an environment of loudest person in the room, smartest person in the room, making a big call for a company that's tens or hundred millions of dollars of investment that takes us through the next three to five years. This is about placing a lot of small bets, putting KPIs in place, testing my hypotheses, seeing what's working, and then making decisions from there on a very iterative basis. And that doesn't feel like a very command and control type of a position. You know, that feels more collaborative. You know, it's, it's, I think it's hard for all of us to let go of that control and embrace the chaos that defines the current environment that we all live in. Thanks for joining us today, Julie. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Julie. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.